Father, you are an awesome, awesome God. You are the only one who is worthy of truly being called awesome because you're the only one who's worthy of all. So Father, we come to you this morning bringing all of our attention, bringing all of our affection, bringing all of our devotion because you and you alone are worthy of our worship and our praise. There's no rival who can contend with you. You have no equal who can be compared to you. You have no peer group. You're not one God among many. You are the only God and there is no other. So Lord, this morning we bring our everything to you because you're worth it. You're worthy of everything that we are and you're worthy of everything that we can bring. And so, Father, as we open up your word this morning, we ask very simply that you would show us more clearly and help us understand more fully who your son Jesus is. Not just who he is for us, but who he is within us. And that as you shine forth in our lives, as you continue to be revealed to a watching world, let your glory be displayed and known among the nations. So, Father, as we come to your word today, we ask that you would speak to us today words that will edify your church and bring glory to your name in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And as he prayed over his disciples, Lord, I I pray over our gathering today, will you sanctify us in the truth? Your word is truth. Speak it to our hearts today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Colossians chapter one is where we'll be together this morning. Um, Closing out chapter one this morning and then tipping our toes into chapter two as well. Um, If you're newer with us, if you're first time with us in the building, it's our fourth Sunday here. I want to make sure you're aware there are Bibles available in the rack of the seat in front of you underneath the seats. So feel free to use that through the morning. Blamish this earlier. If you don't own a Bible, take that with you today. That's our gift to you. Two weeks ago, we started studying Paul's short letter to the Colossians verse by verse. That's what we're doing together this summer. Um, Last week, we came close to the end of chapter one. We're going to finish chapter one this morning. And again, touch into chapter two. And we'll just jump right into things this, uh, today. Um, I do a monthly Zoom call with a group of pastors from around the state. And part of the way that we start out our time together whenever we meet is by asking the question, where do you see evidence of Jesus working in your life? And so we'll spend time talking about ways that we see Jesus working in our own lives and our hearts. We'll talk about ways we see Jesus working in our families and ways that we see the Lord working in our churches. And generally, this is a really encouraging, really helpful exercise exercise because it forces us to look at even the most difficult things that we're going through and see where is the Lord at work even in this. And so generally, it tends to be a really encouraging time. It's a discipline of of training ourselves to see, even in the hardest things that we're going through, where Jesus is revealing himself and showing up in our lives. And and so I want to pose a similar question this morning. Uh, to start off our time together here, beyond asking the question, where do you see Jesus being revealed in your life? I want to ask us today, where do you see Jesus being revealed in the world? Last week, we saw from Colossians 1 that Jesus is the image 
of the invisible God. The invisible God has been made visible through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, how can we continue to see him working today? I saw a really good example of this over the last week. You know, in the midst of our busyness as a church and moving in here and, and getting things sorted out over the last couple of months, a story that I'd really lost sight of um, was the school shooting that happened at the Covenant Christian School in Nashville um, earlier this year. And just out of my own curiosity this past week, I had some time and wanted to do some research just to see how those families were doing and how the school was doing and how the community was doing. And, and man, I was so encouraged because even in the midst of, of this extraordinary tragedy where there has been death, there has been loss, there's been grief, there's been sorrow, parents having to navigate their children through the trauma of what they experienced on that day, even in the middle of all of this, the testimony of that area is that the Lord has continued to reveal himself in powerful ways. There are testimonies of pastors who said, man, there's been, a, there's been an increase in church attendance because people have hurts and they have grief and they're processing this and, and they're seeking hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your testimonies of families who lost children and, and loved ones in the midst of all this who have said, no, no, our hope is still rooted in Jesus Christ and our, our hope is that even in the middle of this tragedy, he'll continue to show that he's good. But I think the most powerful way I read about this past week that the Lord has revealed himself in this tragedy. I learned as I was reading and doing some research that a number of families in the school came together to pay for the shooter's funeral. You know, parents, I, I just wanna ask you to put yourself in their position for a second. You know, what greater sorrow, what greater pain, what greater grief can there be in this life than losing a child? And on the opposite side of that, what greater love, what greater mercy, what greater kindness can you show to the family of someone who has caused you so much pain? And, and church, whenever we as followers of Christ respond in these ways, when we respond to, to just pure evil and, and pure brokenness with the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, it's in those moments that the watching world can look at us and say, there is a God and he's real. Now, this is how Jesus reveals himself through us. So last week we saw that God has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself through Christ. And what we're gonna see this morning is that Christ today continues revealing himself through his church. He reveals himself through you and he reveals himself through me. Through Jesus, the invisible God has been made visible. We saw last week, he is the head of the church. He's the head of the body, and he continues to reveal himself through his body, which is the church today. So from Colossians chapter one, let's begin with reading verse 24. Paul writes, now I rejoice. Everybody say rejoice. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So Christ reveals himself through his church. How does Christ reveal himself through his church today? Paul shows us first that Christ reveals himself through his church as we joyfully suffer in ministry for Christ. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
Now this section that we're gonna look at this morning from 124 to 25 is bookended with expressions of Paul's joy. The Greek verb for joy, Cairo, is found twice in Colossians and both of them are in the verses that we're looking at this morning. And in this first instance where we see Paul expressing his joy is this, he rejoicing in suffering for the sake of the church. Notice in verse 24 when Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, don't take that to mean Paul saying that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was somehow insufficient to atone for our sins and we have to continue suffering in order for full atonement. What Paul's speaking about here is the suffering that Christ promised would come to everyone who believed in him. Now, about this time last year, our, our church family had just started a message series called The Jesus Way. We spent about six months last year studying the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters five through seven. And about this time last year, we were teaching through the Beatitudes, and I think it was Dustin who preached Matthew 5, 11, and 12, where Jesus talks about suffering. He, he says in Matthew 5, 11, and 12, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross was fully sufficient to cover our sins and to perfect the church for all time, but what was lacking still was the suffering that Christ promised would come to all who followed him. So here's what Paul's saying in this. He's saying the suffering that Christ promised to come, uh, had, what promised to, what had promised to come to those who would follow him had come to him, and what was lacking was that suffering that Christ had promised. Nowhere in the Bible, church, understand Nowhere in the Bible does God ever promise that following Jesus is gonna be easy. In fact, scripture promises us the exact opposite. Listen to the words of Jesus that we just read. We should expect this as followers of Christ. We should expect pushback for what it is that we believe and as we follow Jesus. According to Open Doors USA, over 360 million Christians globally are persecuted for their faith today. They're rejected by their families, they lose their jobs, their spouses aren't safe, their children aren't safe, their communities are hostile towards them. In China today, Christians are under surveillance with facial recognition and artificial intelligence. In North Korea, practicing your faith could mean life in a labor camp. In Afghanistan, it is virtually impossible to safely express faith in Jesus Christ. And listen, we could go on and on and on and on. And understand, here in the West, we're not remotely close to this and what we're experiencing. Just that reminder, if somebody says happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, you're, you're, friend, you're not being persecuted, okay? But let's just dial that back a little bit. Let's not cry wolf on persecution. But I think we do need to have an understanding and an awareness that, that man, our culture, the, the nation we're living in right now, it is, it is becoming increasingly hostile to people who believe what we believe, and, and so we just, we have to have an awareness of this. And it's important that we see this because as, as those of us who, man, have grown up in our faith here in the West, you know, we have enjoyed prosperity. We've enjoyed religious freedom and praise God for that. Praise God that we live in a place where we can freely proclaim the gospel. I think that's a gift to be cherished that we should continue to strive to preserve. So it's not that we go chasing after persecution by any means, but for the follower of Jesus Christ, our expectation should not be prosperity. Our expectation should be persecution. And this is where I fear many of us are today. We're willing to follow Jesus. We're, we're willing to hold on to the word up until the point that people no longer like us. 
and then suddenly we're out. And it's unfortunate, it's happening all across our culture today. The moment we, we get pushback from the world, suddenly the Bible's not so clear anymore. It's like, well, maybe, that, maybe that's not what it means. Maybe we don't need that anymore. And listen, church, if, if we are so eager to give up truth in times of prosperity, how are we gonna do in a time of persecution? We should expect this. We should expect the pushback of the world. We should not expect prosperity. We should expect persecution. We gotta be willing to follow Jesus, not just when it means joy. We gotta be willing to follow Jesus even if it means jail. And what Paul shows us here is joy and jail are not mutually exclusive. Where's he writing this letter from? He's writing it from prison. For, for the follower of Jesus Christ, our joy is not contingent on our circumstances. And as we display Christ, even in the midst of great suffering, we see him revealed to our world. It's Chip Ingram who once said that Christians are like tea. If you dip us in hot water, our true colors start to come out. And so here's the question I'll ask us this morning. When the tea of our lives is dipped into the boiling waters of suffering, what's our response gonna be? Will our response be to run? Or will our response be to rejoice? Jesus Christ is powerfully revealed in us and through us when we can rejoice through our suffering in our ministry for him. Verses 25 to 27, Paul goes on to write, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, listen to this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Christ reveals himself through his church. Paul shows us as we joyfully suffer in ministry for Christ. Second, Christ reveals himself through his church as we faithfully steward the mystery of Christ. Verse 25, Paul shows us he had been entrusted with a sacred stewardship. The term steward or administrator was a common term that was used in Roman culture of someone who had been given charge of a household or an estate. So think of someone here who is serving as the legal executor of a will. That person is legally responsible and liable for accurately distributing the contents of the will. So Paul is saying here, I'm a steward of the gospel, an administrator of the gospel, an executor of the gospel, which means he's not just legally bound, he's divinely bound by the Lord to deliver that message, to distribute that message exactly as it was intended. And the stewardship entrusted to Paul, he says, was to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The BDAG uh, Greek, lexicon, Greek English lexicon defines the word mystery as the unmanifested or private counsel of God. That's what's wrapped up in that language. But also in first century culture in Greek pagan religion, a mystery was a secret teaching that was reserved for a select few spiritual leaders who had been initiated into an inner circle. So that word mystery, which Paul uses four times this letter, three of them in this passage today, that is a loaded word for the church at Colossae. That there was an understanding that they had of the hidden, unmanifested counsel of God, but also a pagan understanding of a special level of spiritual knowledge. Now, um, anybody who knows me 
uh, knows that I am a really, really big fan of Christopher Nolan's movies. Any, any Christopher Nolan fans in the room? You like got a new one coming out this week with, with Oppenheimer. Um, our middle son, Nolan, is named after Christopher Nolan. Emily disputes that, um, but that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So I um, love Christopher Nolan's movies. And, and part of what I love about Christopher Nolan's movies is they're movies that just really make you think. I, I mean, you, you better be awake when you watch this stuff because you can easily get lost 20 minutes into the story and never catch up. And, and part of what he does in a lot of his movies is he'll, he'll drop mysterious elements in along the way, and then he'll slowly, progressively reveal them throughout the course of the movie. So um, it's the top hats rolling on the ground at the beginning of The Prestige. It's the, the books falling off of the shelf in Murphy's room in Interstellar. It's the staged death of, of Bruce Wayne Batman in The Dark Knight Rises. And all these movies... There's this mystery that's kind of sprinkled in at different points, but ultimately by the end of those movies, there's, there's pretty clear understanding of what it is that was actually going on, what it was that was behind the scenes. But there's one movie where the mystery really isn't revealed, where there's a lot of controversy and disagreement over what happened, and that movie is Inception. Now, the ending of Inception is a really big controversy, and I'm going to spoil the movie for anybody who's not seen it, even though it's 13 years old, and that's on you if you haven't. Um, Inception ends really with a fundamental question. Is Cobb still dreaming or is he awake? And man, fan theories abound. And listen, if you got three hours one day, I got theories, all right? And, and, and you ask me again, I don't think I just have theories. I think I have the truth of what's going on there because I've not just seen all of Christopher Nolan's movies. Man, I've listened to interviews and, and I've, I've listened to speeches that he's given. And I think what he does in his interviews and speeches is he gives some hints to understanding what's going on in his movies. So I'm not like a casual fan here. I've got like an elite level of understanding about what's going on if I watch a Christopher Nolan film. And if you remember, what's going on in Colossae was an early form of Gnosticism. If Gnosticism was, uh, the, if, if, if Gnostics were in Colossae, you could call me like a Gnostic. Like I have an, an understanding of Christopher Nolan. In, in Colossae, it was Gnosticism. And, and, and they believed they had a level of spiritual understanding that everybody else had missed. The message of the gospel had been revealed to them, but they wanted the believers to think, no, the gospel's not sufficient, your understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ is not sufficient. Your understanding of God is not full. It's insufficient. We have a greater level of wisdom. We have a greater level of clarity. We have a greater level of understanding that all of you have missed. And listen, Paul quickly debunks this. Paul completely blows this up. They claimed to have a market on the mystery, but Paul shows them no. Through Jesus Christ, the mystery of God has been revealed to the whole world. All of it's been revealed. And this is such good news. God's knowledge of who God is, it's not reserved for a select few. Understanding of his word and understanding of who he is, it's not limited to a class of religious elites. Yes, Israel was God's chosen nation, and yes, the Jews were God's chosen people, but Paul shows us here in chapter one, knowledge of him would not just be limited to the Jews, it was also gonna be for the Gentiles. It's for all who call on the name of the Lord and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, God is not the ending of inception. There's no mystery here. Paul says Jesus is the mystery of God. Through Jesus Christ, the mystery has been revealed. The invisible God has been made visible through Jesus. The unmanifested image of God has been made manifest 
through Jesus. The private counsel of God has been made public in Jesus. Jesus is our evidence that God can be known. Jesus is our evidence that God desires to be known. This mystery is not just for pastors. It's not just for Bible scholars. It's not just for religious elites. All of the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God can be known and understood through the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says all of this has been revealed in him. And listen, this is so good for us today. Paul says that we can know God, not just theoretically through information. He says that we can know God intimately in relationship. God has chosen to make known the riches of his glory of this mystery. And what is that mystery? Paul reveals it in verse 27. He says, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Friends, don't miss this this morning. The glory of the mystery of God is not just that he has dwelt among us. The glory of the mystery of God is that he now dwells within us. You know, part of why I felt the Lord is leading us to Colossians as a church this summer is, is Colossians, it's just, again, we saw this in week one, even in his correction of the church, Paul never loses his affection for the church. And, and, and Colossians has just an overwhelmingly encouraging message. And I just felt really burdened to take us through this this summer because, man, I feel like every single follower of Jesus that I talk to is like hanging on by a thread, like just worn out by life, Worn out by the challenging messages of our cultures today. Goodness sakes, worn out by inflation. I mean, just, just worn out by everything. Just absolutely worn out and burnt out by, by everything that's happening around us and really questioning, man, is there a God? And does he see me? And, and can I know him? And does he know what I'm going through? And, and the answer that Paul gives us in this letter over and over and over again is yes, he does. He does, and it's a brother, sister, the one thing I just want you to hear over and over and over again in this season is you're gonna make it. You can make it, and it's not gonna be because of your efforts and your holding on to God. It's going to be his holding on to you. If, if I could just jolt some of us out of our sleep a little bit this morning, stop listening to your feelings and start listening to the promises of God. Stop listening to what you're saying about yourself and listen to what your father has said about you. Our feelings are not our reality here. Just because you feel like leaving him does not mean he feels like leaving you. Just because you feel like giving up does not mean that he's giving up on you. Just because you feel like you're hanging on by a thread doesn't mean he's not holding on to you. Jesus is the mystery of God. And that mystery has not only been revealed through Christ with us, that mystery has been revealed through Christ in us. He is our hope of glory. So Paul finishes chapter one, going into chapter two like this. He says, him we proclaim. Christ we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone. Everyone say everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal of ministry. That's, that's my goal as a pastor. It's all of us being presented as mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
For I want you to know how great a struggle, there's that word again, I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of faith in Christ. So Christ reveals himself through his church as we joyfully suffer in ministry for Christ. Second, Christ reveals himself through his church as we faithfully steward the mystery of Christ. And third, Paul shows us this morning, Christ reveals himself through his church as we patiently struggle toward maturity in Christ. Now, going back to the first point for just a moment, I mentioned earlier that this section of scripture from 124 to 2.5, it's bookended with references to joy. Now, the first one back in verse 28, Paul was rejoicing in his sufferings for the sake of the church. What's unique about these two different expressions is that Paul is rejoicing about the church at two different levels. And, And the levels he's rejoicing in are what we might call the big C church and the little C church. Remember, where's Paul writing this letter from? He's writing this from prison. Paul is a thousand miles away from the believers in Colossae. We have absolutely no evidence that Paul ever met these people in person. It's because Paul had a concern for the global church. He had a concern for the big C church. It wasn't for Paul about just any one single local congregation. His concern was for all Christians everywhere. And so he rejoices in the sake, for the sake of his sufferings for people that he would never even meet. He's rejoicing in the building up of the global body of Christ. But the second expression that we see in chapter two, verse five, we see Paul then rejoicing in the little C local church. He rejoices in the Colossian believers. He rejoices in their good order and firmness of faith. This is important for us to see. For the apostle Paul and for the early Christians, their relationship to the church was not either about the big C church or the little C church. It wasn't an either or, it was a both and. God has knit us all together, all believers globally, all believers in all places as the big C church, and yet we see all through the New Testament that God's plan in building the big C church is through little C local churches like ours, like the church in Colossae, like the church in Laodicea. We see Paul rejoicing as he struggles for their maturity. So here's what I wanna do as as we walk through the rest of this message um, today. In these seven verses, we see at least eight marks of a maturing church. So I'm gonna pause for just a second because I know some of you are like, okay, we're pushing lunchtime. You see eight points. You're concerned right now. And I'm just gonna let you know, man, we, we finished on time. I've done it twice today already, okay? Two for two. We're gonna do this together. You're the awake group. We've all had coffee at this point in time. And so we're just gonna very quickly rapid fire in Colossians chapter two, work through eight marks of a maturing church. Paul is struggling for their maturity. That's what he wants to see. He wants to present them as mature in Christ. And I use that word maturing very, very intentionally because understand this side of eternity, you and I will never be fully mature in Jesus. Until the day we see Jesus face to face, his work in us is not finished. Okay, so, so, so we have not fully matured as a church because we moved into a building four weeks ago, amen? Like the work's not done here. We, we see at least eight marks of a maturing church. And the reason why I want us to, to just center down on this as we close out together this morning 
is, is because, you know, our church is coming up to this place. We're almost seven years old. So our, our, our little church plant, man, we're, we're not in kindergarten anymore. Now, you, you could, I think, accurately say at this point in time, we're, we're really no longer a church plant. We're now a church planted. That the Lord has established a work here. And, and, and as, you know, we're, we're in this unique season, we've moved into a facility, we've never had our own home before, and that gives us some opportunities and privileges that we've never experienced before. Um, and, and with that, like for pretty much every church in the history of churches that moves into a facility, there, there kind of comes this wave of, of growth. The church continues to grow. But friends, I hope we understand this morning, just because a church is growing does not mean that a church is growing up. And our church is no exception to this. And so I, I don't think this is just a word here, these eight things for the church. It's easy to talk about the church. I want to talk about Cross Community Church, Beaufort, South Carolina right now. And, and what should be marking us as we continue to grow and mature in Christ? This is the critical question for us now, today, is this. As we continue to grow out, will we continue to grow up? So very quickly, from 128 to 25, I wanna lay out for us this morning eight marks of a maturing church based on the words of the Apostle Paul. First mark of a maturing church from chapter one, verse 28, is Christ-centered proclamation of the scriptures. Chapter one, verse 28, Paul says, him we proclaim. Christ we proclaim. What makes the church uniquely Christian is not that we preach. What makes us uniquely Christian is that we preach Christ. And not just Christian morals, not just Christian values, not just Christian principles, but we preach the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we emphasize that language Christ-centered. We believe convictionally as a church, your whole Bible points to Jesus. Old Testament points to the Christ coming. New Testament shows us Christ who came and how we're supposed to live in response. Jesus is the hero of all 1,189 chapters of your Bible. So we preach Christ. Christians gathered around the preached word, what you and I are doing right now, this is the irreducible minimum of the body of Christ. And for better or for worse, the pulpit and the teaching ministries of the church set the, therm set the thermostat for the, temp the spiritual temperature of the church. Whether or not we're growing and whether or not we're maturing, we will never mature beyond the preaching and the teaching of the word. And a truly mature congregation, Paul shows us, will commit to preaching the whole counsel of God's word, including the hard parts. But listen to what Paul says here. He says that we're preaching and teaching not just wisdom, but also preaching and teaching warnings. Maturity, from Paul's perspective, means not just preaching the wisdom of Scripture, it means also preaching the warnings of Scripture. And here's why we need both. If you want the churches to continue growing, then, then preach the wisdom of Scripture. But what ends up happening if you preach the wisdom of Scripture without the warnings of Scripture is while you might have a church that grows out, the church will never grow up. If, if we decide that we're going to back off of, of every part of Scripture, every call to repentance, every warning of judgment, everything that the Bible teaches about eternal condemnation, we just say, hey, we're, we're just, we're just going to drift away from those things. We'll have a church that's 10 miles wide, but we'll be about a half inch deep. And so if we want to preach, if we want the church to grow out, we'll preach wisdom. But if we want the church to grow up, we'll also preach warnings. Biblical preaching is really, really pretty simple. What I'm doing today is really, really simple. We read the text, we explain it, we apply it to our lives, and we show how it points to Jesus Christ. And this is the key mark of a truly maturing 
church. Next, Paul shows us that a maturing church is marked by spirit-empowered effort in ministry service. Chapter 1, verse 29. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. I love that language. Mature churches aren't filled with lazy Christians. Friends, Jesus did not walk out of that grave so that we could rest in the pews. That's why we don't even have pews around here. I love pews, by the way. I think it'd look really good along these back walls. I'm not knocking on pews. But Jesus didn't walk out of that grave so that you and I could rest on our laurels and, and do nothing. Mature churches are not afraid of hard work. We're not full of spectators and consumers. Mature churches are full of laborers and workers who recognize we have Christ within us. And he has uniquely gifted every single one of us. His energy is working within us for the continual building up of the body of Christ. So by the power of his Holy Spirit, maturing churches will actively struggle and toil to see the body built up. Next, mature churches are, maturing churches are marked by a global concern for the body of Christ. Love this. Chapter two, verse one, Paul references not just Colossae, but also the church at Laodicea. This was another congregation that was located within about 12 miles of Colossae. And again, Paul would not see these people face to face. He wouldn't have a personal relationship with them. So again, here's Paul writing from over a thousand miles away in prison, and yet he is concerned, he is struggling for the maturity of believers, most of whom he would never meet. Paul knew that the global body of Christ was best strengthened through the maturity of individual local churches. Listen, mature churches don't look at three billion people who don't know Jesus and say, that's somebody else's problem. Mature churches don't move into buildings and say, our work here is done, somebody else's turn. That this is not the mark of a maturing church. So we, we continually, we, we want to send out missionaries. We want to support them. We want to pray for those who answer the call uh, that God places on their lives to go. We want to sustain the work and the labor and the efforts of those who are already gone. We want to remember our brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted and who are proclaiming the gospel at the risk of their own lives. The local church is a global mission. So local maturing churches will have a global concern. Next, Paul says that a maturing church is marked by an evident culture of encouragement and love. Has anybody ever left a church because it was too friendly? I think there's exactly zero cases of that. Paul writes that he is struggling for them so their hearts will be encouraged and they'll continue to be knit together in love. Maturing churches are not marked by division and constant infighting. Maturing churches do not tolerate gossip and slander within the body. In maturing churches, people don't assume the worst about each other and behind closed doors vent about each other's shortcomings. Church, when outsiders come in among us, when they join us for our gatherings, whenever they visit us in our community groups, more than anything else, we should want them to be able to walk away saying, man, those people really love each other. It should be evident among us. And, and listen, if I, I could just give you, let you in a little bit of a secret this morning in, in terms of the, the brothers and sisters who are sitting around you, there's absolutely no one sitting in this room and there is no one in your life who is struggling because they're receiving too much encouragement. And this should be the mark of a healthy church. Man, we should walk in on Sunday mornings to an avalanche of encouragement. We should be eager to encourage one another as we're knit together in love. Next, Paul shows us that maturing churches are marked by growing confidence 
in the person and work of Jesus. Chapter two, verses two and three, Paul prays for them to reach all the riches of full assurance. I love this. Of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So maturing churches are continually striving to grow in our knowledge and understanding of who Christ is and what he's done. And as we grow in our knowledge of Christ, we have a, a clearer knowledge of ourselves, which, which leads us to, to, the, to the merciful place where we start to understand we should trust ourselves less and trust him more. The more we become aware of who he is, the less confident we become in what we can do and the more confident we become in the work of Jesus. Listen, the quickest way to stunt your spiritual growth, the quickest way to stop maturing as a believer is to stop learning and thinking about Jesus. We want to week in and week out become more confident in him. Maturing churches never stop being wowed by the gospel. It continually blows our mind that our perfect holy God loved us who were sinners and found a place for us and made a place for us through the death of his son. Paul shows next, chapter two, verse four, that maturing churches are marked by ongoing sensitivity to the deception of false teaching. You understand there's never been a time going all the way back to the first century when the church has not been vulnerable to the deception of false teaching. And again, that's not going to change in our generation. Several years ago, I was attending a conference where I heard Matt Chandler preaching and, and he said something in that conference that's really stuck with me. He said, if you're not confident in the authority of scripture, you'll become a slave to what sounds right. Let me just read that for us one more time this morning. If you're not confident in the authority of scripture, you'll become a slave to what sounds right. Listen to what Paul says in verse four. Paul doesn't warn them about being deceived by bad arguments. He warns them about being deceived by plausible arguments. I mean, isn't that what makes false teachers so deceptive? Man, what they say, it sounds right. Like, like maybe they're, they're even using some gospel language in there and, and, and it looks like they're trying to accomplish some, some gospel goals. And, and part of the challenge we have today, goodness, there's so many voices. There's, there's books and there's blogs and, and there's podcasts. And, and, and where many of us are, I fear, is, goodness, we are experts in what all the experts have to say about the Bible, but we don't really know the Bible all too well ourselves. And there's a big, big difference between knowing what everybody else has said about the Bible and knowing what the Bible actually says. Healthy churches are not full of people who are slaves to what sound right. We're stewards of the words that God has actually said. And the best way to quickly recognize a counterfeit is to be an expert in what's real. Church, this is what's real. And this is what's gonna make us most sensitive to the deception of false teaching. Next, Paul shows us that healthy churches are marked, maturing churches are marked by strong commitment to organizational excellence. Now, this one might feel a little bit out of place, and as we press into this, I know it's gonna make some of us uncomfortable. And, and you probably have some really good reasons for those feelings of, of discomfort, either through a bad experience or, or at least a bad perception. But listen to this. I'm just gonna read the Bible here. First, uh, in uh, chapter two, verse five, Paul commends the Colossian believers for their good order. Now, now what's that about? Now, that, that word good order, it comes from the term taxis, which is the same word we use to describe military tactics. 
So the picture that Paul is painting here really describes a military unit that's marching together in formation, in perfect harmony and in step with each other. So, so when you think about good order, the, the picture that should come to mind, think of a well-trained SEAL team. They've been trained, they've been equipped, they've been organized, they're on the same page, and they are working together in perfect harmony in order to execute and carry out a mission. And again, I know that some of us, like, we really, really struggle with the idea of thinking of the church in organizational terms, but goodness, just, just read the New Testament. The early church had very clearly defined leaders. They had a very clearly defined membership. They knew who belonged to each local congregation. Gasp. They counted. They counted numbers. And again, I know it's like there's definitely a way to, to overemphasize that, but we're not careful, we'll actually end up underemphasizing that. That they cared about order, they cared about structure. Read the pastoral epistles. Man, there was there were policies, there were procedures, there were standards that they were called to abide by. And, and, and it makes us so uncomfortable to talk about the church in organizational terms. And the, and the pushback is, is well, no, the, you know, the church isn't supposed to be run like a business. And I'm like, yes and amen. The church should not be run like a business. And you know why? Because the church is way more important than a business. The church is not an earthly business. The church is an eternal mission, which means, friends, we should be run better than a business. We, we should be striving with everything that we have, with all of the wisdom and knowledge we can get to build up good order so that the message of the gospel can continue to flourish, so that we can work together and march together in perfect unity and harmony as we advance the message to the ends of the earth. Again, is it possible to overemphasize those things? Absolutely. Which is why Paul doesn't just commend them for their good order. He also commends them for their firmness of faith. This is why the eighth mark of a maturing church we see in chapter two, verse five, is steadfast unity in doctrine and beliefs. So here's the relationship between good order and firmness of faith. While good order speaks more to military strategy, firmness of faith speaks to military strength and solidarity. Maturing churches are clear in their doctrinal and theological convictions. Maturing churches care about definitions. Maturing churches are steadfast in our commitment to the gospel, both in mission and message. So, so here's the relationship between good order and firmness of faith. Think of good order as a garden trellis, okay? And, and the reason you put up a trellis is so the vine has a vertical structure where it can continue to grow. Because without the trellis, what ends up happening is the vine just remains on the ground, and it's not that it can't grow on the ground, but it's much more susceptible to disease. It's much more susceptible to getting trampled on, and it won't flourish quite the way that it could. It won't receive the oxygen that it could without the vertical structure of the trellis to help it grow up. And so think of, again, good order in the church as a conduit through which the message of the gospel can flow. And Paul shows us here we should be deeply concerned about both. We should care man, that we are together that we are clear, that we are on the same page, that we are marching in step together as brothers and sisters in Christ because our mission is the most important mission that this world can know. If we really, really believe that the church is the most important mission, if we really believe that our message is the most important message, we should be doing everything that we can to effectively get this message out. So these are all marks of a maturing church. All of these are marks of maturing church, and none of us are ever going to, to fully experience this, this side of eternity, but by God's grace, 
What we should be looking at this as we continue to develop and grow as a congregation, let's not just ask the question, are we growing? Listen, bad organizations grow all the time. Let's not just be asking, are we growing? Let's be asking, are we growing up? Are we maturing in, in Christ? And, and, and we have to understand as we do this, it's not gonna come easy. According to the Apostle Paul, when it comes to the maturity of the church, the struggle is definitely real. The struggle is very, very real. He says, I'm struggling for this for you. I'm struggling for your, mater- uh, for, for your, for your maturity as brothers and sisters in Christ. But church, here's the good news for us today. We don't engage this struggle on our own. We don't do this by ourselves. What this text shows us this morning is that maturity for us as a church, maturity for us as believers, maturity is a reality because the mystery of who God is has been revealed. And God has not just been revealed to us. Christ dwells within us. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And so friend, on both an individual level and for us collectively as a body, I just want to encourage us today and say, keep struggling. Keep struggling. And as you struggle, know that Christ dwells within you. Stop listening to your feelings and start listening to his promises. Stop listening to your own voice and start listening to his voice. And listen, if you don't have the strength to do that yourself, bring other people in your life who will who will preach the gospel to you that you don't have the strength to preach to yourself, who can remind you of the promises of God, who can remind you you're not alone in this. We have each other, but more than that, we have Christ, and he's our ultimate hope of glory. So will you bow your heads with me as we close um, together this morning? Fathers, we prepare our hearts to come to the table for communion And we remember this message this morning and this truth that Christ in us is our hope of glory. Will you set our eyes now on what Christ has done for us so that we can have a hope of glory? Father, I pray for the weary brother or sister in this room this morning who is struggling. Would they know even in this moment above anything else, you are with them, you are for them. Father, will you continue to work in us and through us? Lord, we we want to show this world Jesus. So thank you for the promise of Christ within us. Thank you for the promise of our hope of glory. And as you continue to work in our hearts, help us to continue showing you to the watching world. as we close together this morning, keep your heads bowed with me for just a moment. We're gonna come to the table for communion. Let's prepare our hearts. Let's examine ourselves. Let's not ever come to the table frivolously or just out of empty repetition or routine. What is in you that is not of Christ today? Where's your life out of step with his word? confess our sin before the Lord. As we confess our sin, let's ask the Lord for a heart of true and genuine repentance. 
ask him that he would enable us to go beyond. We, we don't just want to understand to stop the action of our sin. We need the Lord to change our affections. So not just that we would stop doing the things that stand in opposition to him, but that we would no longer have even the desire to do them, that we would be satisfied in Christ and content in all that he is for us and all that he's done for us. So Father, as we come to this table this morning, as we confess and we sing, as we pray, as we repent, as we rejoice in the finished work of your son, will you be glorified in the praises and the worship and the response of your people? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen, amen.